Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2, and we're going to be covering uh, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Uh, Janine and I received in the mail last week our very first invitation to an Alabama wedding. So uh, we're excited about this. Someone told me that I needed to get a camouflage suit and tie, so I've been uh, looking for those online. I think they were messing with me, but uh, I'll confirm before I make a purchase. Uh, but that's, that's coming up uh, soon. Uh, this will be the first wedding that I've been to in a long time where I wasn't officiating, so that, that's going to be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to just, just being there as a participant. And actually, I love weddings. I love weddings. I love the, uh, I love the celebratory tone. I love uh, the, the seeing everybody come together. I love the, looks on the, the look on the groom's face when the bride appears in the back. I love uh, so much about weddings and um, at more than one wedding, I'm embarrassed to say, as I've watched the bride and groom lay eyes on each other, as I've stood close to them as the officiant, and I've seen them start to cry, I myself have teared up, which is an embarrassing thing. I always hear someone say, why is the pastor crying? But there's something about that moment that really just sort of, it's so powerful and rich. Weddings are a big deal. Weddings are a very big deal. But even the most extravagant American weddings, even the celebrity weddings that you read about as you're standing in the grocery store aisle, you see someone just got married. Even the most extravagant American weddings don't even compare to the wedding celebrations in ancient Jewish culture in Jesus' day. Weddings in that culture were incredible week-long celebrations. There were these extravagant ordeals that, were, that featured feasting and dancing and, and a prescribed number of events. The protocol involved very specific customs that were followed. A wedding was the highest of all celebrations in culture. And it's there at one of those weddings that we find Jesus this morning as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of John section by section, looking to keep the context in its broader historical and cultural uh, situation. And as we've been looking through this series called Signs, the study through John, we're seeing Jesus more clearly and seeing something about his kingdom that he came to inaugurate. So let me begin just by reading the first couple of verses of John chapter 2. This is the word of God. It reads this way. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because I don't want to miss this. Uh, before we get to the, to the miracle at the wedding, I don't want to gloss over the fact that Jesus was even at the wedding at all. And this is not some strange ordeal. This is not some unusual circumstance. Throughout the Gospels, we're, Jesus is revealed to us as a person who was invited to dinners and gatherings and social events and weddings and parties, and he accepted those invitations. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. First, it shows us something about what Jesus was like. And as Pastor Adam so beautifully explained last week, that um, our misconceptions about Jesus can great, do great harm to us. Right? What we understand about Jesus may be the most important thing about us. And so this passage reveals something about what Jesus was like. It tells us Jesus was no killjoy. Jesus was no... Ascetic. In other words, he wasn't a guy who said no to everything and everybody. 
He wasn't a guy who, who declined every invitation that he received. He actually was a guy who went to parties. He went to weddings. He went to celebrations. He enjoyed gatherings with people. Even people with really bad reputations. He ate and drank with such people. There was a reason that he was called by the religious folks a friend of sinners, a glutton, and a drunk. So, first of all, this shows us something about what Jesus was like. But also, the second reason it's important is Jesus' presence at the wedding shows us how Jesus gained an audience with people. In other words, how it was that he, he got people to listen to him. Why they listened to him. And it was this. He was enjoyable. He was fun. I had a man tell me this week that one of his Christian friends said to him, I think we need to start hanging around each other less. The man said, well, why, why do you say that? He said, well, I'm not sure if you're helping me grow spiritually. To which the man said, well, we, we pray together. We confess our sins together. We, we talk about theology together. We read the scriptures together. I don't, I don't get it. Like, wh why would you say that? And he said, well... He said, I just don't think you're serious enough. Somehow we've gotten the notion that in order to be like Jesus, we've got to always be serious, you know, always somber, weighed down at all, at all times, avoid celebrations where sin could take place. But here we see a Jesus who was a regular at festivals, gatherings, and parties. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a teenager, your pastor's not telling you to go to more parties but what I am saying is we can't reach people that we don't know. We can't get to know people unless we're actually around people. And we'll never get anyone to listen to us if we're regarded as judgmental, critical, self-serious, or dare I say, boring. Longtime pastor and scholar James Montgomery Boyce writes this, Some Christians go around with grim looks, and long faces. If they ever find themselves in the company of someone else who's having a good time, they immediately suspect that the cause of the fun is either illegal, immoral, or fattening. <laughs> Jesus was not like that, he says. He did not condemn those who were enjoying themselves, and he was not jealous of them. As a result, he was welcome at their gatherings. And listen to this. And those who had invited him listened to his teaching. Scriptures tell us that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. But I have to tell you, what I see a lot of times is Christians who are of the world, but not in it. In other words, they think just like the world. They treasure the things the world treasures. They forgive just like the world, reluctantly and with a lot of stipulations. But they're not actually in the world. They don't know anybody in the world. They're not actually engaging people where they are. Now, here's a diagnostic question for you that I asked myself, and with great shame, I answered poorly. Who do you have as a friend that if you were seen together might cause someone to think, you're friends with him? What are you doing with her? See, by his social life, Jesus provided a pattern for us as it relates to engaging unbelievers he was among them. He was with them. He listened to them. He engaged them, while at the same time not thinking like they thought or treasuring what they treasured. Part of winning people to Jesus is being around people who don't know Jesus. And not just being around them, but allowing them to see the joy that we have in Christ. 
in a Savior who himself experienced great joy. Sorrow, yes, but also great joy. Now here's the first point I want you to see from this passage. The Christian life is a life of superior joy. And it is our joy that will attract people to Jesus. On Wednesday, I taught at the, uh, over at Summit Crossings Church a class called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. And uh, we're actually having a one-day sort of crash course here at Capshaw in a few months. But uh, my lesson was Lesson 4, Mandate for the Nations. And, and one of the points that I made was virtually no one has ever come to Christ because they've been out-argued to Jesus. In other words, who do you know in your life who has run to Jesus in, redemp- in, in, in saving faith, in repentant faith, because their argument has been sufficiently dismantled? That's really not the way it works, is it? This is the reason uh, I think that so many people turn off other people, because it's all about winning an argument. What will gain for us an audience is a listening ear, is humility, love, compassion, and our joy. The reason my wife has had so many neighbors open up to her over the years, and some have come to saving faith in Christ, is because she exudes joy in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians, of course, it doesn't mean we can't be sad at times. It doesn't mean we can't grieve. It doesn't mean that we can't mourn. It doesn't even mean that we can't have down periods of sorrow. Of course not. In fact, living on this uneven planet, one that's cursed by sin, means we will struggle. We will have sorrow. We will experience pain. We will go through suffering. So please don't hear me say that we have to sort of plaster smiles on our faces all the time and pretend to be happy. That's not what I'm I'm saying. There's nothing super spiritual about being pretending to be happy all the time. But those who are in Christ have experienced forgiveness. And there's no greater reason for joy than that. See, our confidence this morning is not that tomorrow we may be a little bit better than we were today. Our confidence is not that we may be a little more obedient or sin a little bit less than we did today. No, our confidence is is that none of our sins will be held against us. None of our sins will be counted against us, not even one. And that's the reason for joy. Those who are in Christ are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which means we have the Spirit of God living in us, pouring in our hearts the love of God at every moment, reassuring us of the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross, confirming with our spirit that we belong to God. That's a reason for joy that the world doesn't have. Those who are in Christ have a steadfast hope for the future, an everlasting home, an imperishable treasure. That's a reason for joy. The Christian life is characterized by joy. There's a reason that joy is listed right at the top of the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruits of the Spirit are not behaviors that Christians should strive for. These are actually the the attributes that characterize Christians. There's a reason that our mission as a church is to make disciples who make disciples for God's glory and the joy of all peoples. Because in Christ there is joy and there's an attractional joy. The sort of thing that will cause other people to say, how do they live like that? How do they forgive like that? How do they experience this sort of joy? Now, again, this is not the main point of the passage, but I I think we would overlook it at our expense. So what happens at this wedding? Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, 
the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now this is a, this is a much bigger deal than we may realize upon a surface reading. The groom and the father were responsible for all the arrangements at the wedding, including the food and drink. And to run out of wine would have been a huge embarrassment to the family, especially in a shame-based culture. So this would have been a terrible thing. This would have brought disrepute on the name of the family, the groom's family. And some even argue, I read one historian who said, I didn't verify this, but this was a reputable source, who said it was such an egregious offense to run out of food and drink at a wedding that the family members of the bride, the bride's relatives, could actually sue the groom's family. So this is a huge deal. This is no laughing matter here. And remember, there weren't a hundred options for beverages like we have. You know, we got Pepsi products and Coke products and Gatorade and Powerade and Sobe water and iced tea and Arnold Paul. You got a million things, right? There, they had water and wine. That was it. So you couldn't run out and get, you know, some Sierra Mist. That was all you had. So all they had was water and wine. And Mary says to Jesus, look, they have no wine. Now look at how he responds in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? I never called my mom woman. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, what her response might have been. Uh, it sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Well, sometimes when we're reading these short statements, which come from a different language, a different time, different culture, we can misconstrue the tone or purpose. It's kind of like trying to make sense of a text message. You ever got a text message where you go, I, I, I really don't know what they mean. Are they saying something very mean to me? Are they trying to make a joke? I mean, it, you can be, text messages can present all kinds of problems, can't they? Not too long ago, I was texting back and forth with, with a local pastor, and at the same time, I was texting my daughter. So they, both the texts, you know, it was, a, it was a simultaneous conversation. And the pastor and I had made plans to have lunch together, and so I was sitting in the lunch, and I was texting him where I was in, in the restaurant so he would know where to find me. And at the same time, I was texting back and forth with my teenage daughter, who was sharing with me some of her frustrations about my parenting skills. So <laughs> we were going back and forth, you know, in this text exchange, and i just gotten a new phone, and with this phone, if you turn the phone sideways, I guess you call it landscape, right, or portrait, one of the two, landscape. If you turn it sideways, you could actually send your text by writing with your finger. And so I love technology. I was in, so I was sending all my texts by handwriting them. So I'm texting back and forth with this pastor and also my daughter, and I got a text uh, exactly the same moment. I got a text from the pastor who said, caught in traffic, I'll see you in 10. And at the same time, I got a text from my daughter that said, Dad, you made me late to school today. You ruined my perfect attendance. So I scribbled a text that I meant to send to my daughter, but I actually sent it to this pastor. And so to this grown man who told me he's running late for lunch, here's what I wrote to him. You're still perfect in my eyes. So I, I was... I wanted to tell my daughter, look, you may not have a perfect attendance, but you're still perfect in my eyes. But it made for an awkward introduction when this guy arrived for lunch. I had to explain to him, look, I mean, you know, I like you and everything, and you're a cool guy, but see, text messages can pose a problem, and so can, so can interpreting language or phrases from 2,000 years ago. So let me try to make sense of this phrase. Jesus 
response is not really harsh, although it seemed to be. The term woman was sometimes used in actually a compassionate way. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, he looked out and said to his mother, he said, woman, behold your son. He was pointing to John, the same person who wrote this, this gospel. It's a moment of compassionate care. So what Jesus is doing here, again, he's not, he's not being mean to his mother. He is reinforcing to his mom, this is so important, that she is first his disciple and only secondarily his mother. Now, of course, this would have been hard for Mary. Can you imagine, as a mother, she taught him to walk. She gave birth to Jesus. She nursed him. She bandaged his wounds when he fell as a toddler. She watched as he went through puberty and developed a grown man strength. She saw her son do all of these things. And at this point, some, some actually argue, tradition says that Mary may have been a widow by this point. We don't see or read anything about Joseph after the time of the temple when Jesus was 12. And so it could have been that, that she was actually relying on him and he wants to say, no, yes, yes, I love you. Yes, you're my mother, but first of all, you are my disciple. Here's what New Testament scholar Don Carson says. He says, now that Jesus had entered into the purpose of his calling, everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. Mary could no longer view him as other mothers view their own sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. She, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's our second point this morning. Though teaching, healing, and miracles were all part of Jesus' ministry, his mission was to live, die, and be raised again for his people's forgiveness. Now, this is so important because when a lot of people look at Jesus, my own father is this way, they, they can take the teacher, they can take the strong leader, they can take the great influencer, they can look at his strategies and tactics and following, but they can't accept him as the substitute for their own sin. They can't accept him as the one that they desperately need for forgiveness. Jesus did all those other things and those were good things, but his mission was singular, to save his people from their sins. Through his active obedience, that is through obeying the law, through his substitutionary death, his justifying resurrection, his ascension, and his impending return. And now that Jesus has begun his ministry in earnest, nothing could distract him from that mission, not even his own mother. So when Mary says, we're out of wine, Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Now, the, the hour, the time or hour is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and then subsequent exaltation to glory. Remember the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus endured the cross for the glory set before him. So when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what he's saying was, it's not yet time for my glory to be fully revealed. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he lacked glory. He was always glorious. He always spoke and led with authority. He was always one who was glorious. But when he died on the cross and was raised from the dead, he was exalted to a place of unparalleled glory, such that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all creation. 
This is the glory bestowed upon him by the Father. And all of that, this glory will be revealed through Jesus' life and ministry. But at that moment, at that wedding, it wasn't time for his full glory to be revealed. His hour had not yet come. But that didn't stop his mother. Verse, look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, this is where, in my opinion, preachers can easily go wrong with this passage and make the point of the passage, these are the marching orders for every Christian. Do whatever he tells you. I actually heard one person that I really respect as a preacher uh, summarize this text this way. Here is the Christian life in a nutshell. Do whatever he tells you. Now, should a Christian do whatever Jesus tells us to do? Absolutely. I mean, should we do whatever he tells us to do? Of course, absolutely. But that's not why John includes this. That's not why John includes Mary's words here. This, is, this statement reveals to us Mary's trust in her son. That he's not just a good boy. You know, he's not just a good son. He's not just a helpful contributor to the family. When she is around him, she realizes she is in royal company. She is in the presence of the one who holds unlimited power. You know that song, Mary, did you know? Here's the answer, at least in part. Mary believed what the angels had told her, that her baby boy would be the savior of the world. So if we're going to simplify the Christian life, we're going to really boil it down to our responsibility, it would instead be this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the Son of God, that he is the only hope for salvation, that his life, death, and resurrection represent my only hope, not just the hope of the world, but my only hope as a sinful and broken person to be reconciled to God. Mary was there, it appears, and her trust in Jesus was well-placed. Look at verses 6 through 11. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. The wine at the wedding is gone. And again, this is a situation that would bring shame on the groom's family. Everyone had drunk freely, verse 10 suggests. In fact, we really want to get into the Greek word there. It also suggests that many were inebriated. And Jesus tells the serving staff to, to fill up the stone jars with water. There were six of these jars, we're told, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Once they're filled, Jesus says, now take some to the master of the ceremony for tasting. And somehow, the water becomes wine. Now, we would be wasting our time if we try to figure out exactly what sort of wine it was, okay? Was it a Cabernet? Was it a Chardonnay? Was it a Sauvignon Blanc? It doesn't really matter, okay? That's not the point. 
It probably wasn't as strong as our wines today since wine was typically diluted with water by a third, but it certainly wasn't grape juice since we know that people often got drunk on it. It was a fermented beverage that was to be enjoyed in moderation, with caution, and with wisdom. In fact, the consistent witness of the Scriptures, and this is important as we see what this sign is pointing to, the consistent witness of the Scriptures is wine is to be celebrated. It is created for our enjoyment, but drunkenness is expressly condemned. And when God's people enjoy wine, they should do it in moderation, with gratitude, with caution, and according to the laws of society. But whatever type of wine it was, it must have been delicious because the master of the house says, this is so unusual. This is not the way it normally works. Normally people serve the good stuff. Uh, they serve the bad stuff first, right? Then people get drunk on it. Then, wait, am I saying that right? Typically everyone serves the good wine first because when people get drunk, they don't know the difference, right? But you've saved the best for last. In other words, this is not some extra watered-down cheap stuff, okay? This is the good stuff. John tells us this was the first of Jesus' signs. Now, there's a reason that John doesn't say was the first of his miracles. He doesn't say this was the first of his mighty deeds of power. He calls it signs. A sign points to something else. The red octagon with the white border around it tells us to stop. It demands a response. Halt your progress. Not slow down and look around, as many Alabamans interpret it. It doesn't mean slow down and make sure the coast is clear. It means go no further, right? But that sign actually points to something deeper, and that is it points beyond itself to the safety that is afforded when people abide by the law. First time I went to the beautiful continent of Africa, I was traveling into a little village doing some preaching and training up local pastors, and I came across this sign. This is a sign that means, if you can see it, hippo crossing. First I'd ever seen a sign like that. And what it really means, what it really points to is danger might be ahead for you. Right? There, there was a, a terrible thing going on with tourists where they were mistaking uh, hippos, because hippos will come out in the sun and they'll just sort of breach and stay right in the middle of the sun. They were, the tourists were mistaking hippos for large rocks. They were getting their whole family together and having lunch on the back of a hippo and not realizing it. And as a result, you can Google this after the service, that the most dangerous animal in South Africa is actually the hippopotamus, not the lion. Kills more people. So, but this sign actually points to something else, and that is danger is ahead. A sign points to a deeper reality. And here these six water jars represent the whole ceremonial, ritualistic cleansing that God's people had we're doing at that point in history. The water jars symbolize the varied efforts of people that people went to in order to make themselves clean before God and before others. And the emptiness and the frustration that this leads to. What Jesus is demonstrating by this sign is the painstaking rituals of the old covenant are being superseded by something beautiful and something new. Now, this will be a theme throughout John's gospel. Here, it's the ceremonial water being turned into wine. Next week, it'll be the temple, which was a place where people met God. And Jesus will say that 
The temple is being replaced, uh, has been replaced by the new temple, which is the person of Jesus through whom we now encounter God. A few weeks after that, we'll see Nicodemus' story, old religious life superseded by the new birth. And then we'll come to the Samaritan woman. Jacob's well of water is, is clearly contrasted with Jesus, the living water, the old water which leaves you thirsty, but the new water, Jesus, the living water which satisfies. And in the same story, the place for worship, the mandatory locations, the mountain, the temple, supplanted by a new non-geographic location, worshiping in spirit and truth over and over and older, over the old giving way to the new. And the new wine, the wine which symbolizes gladness in the Scriptures, represents the joy and laughter, the gladness of life in Christ, the freedom of life apart from the burden of religion. The old way being supplanted by the new. Now here's what Jesus is making clear. This is our third point, our final point this morning. What religion promises but can never deliver, Jesus provides God's complete and unwavering acceptance. Religion promises a lot of things. But it doesn't matter what religion we're talking about. It never, ever provides but Jesus provides God's unwavering and complete acceptance. When we were moving from Southern California to Alabama, uh, the plan was for my oldest son and, and, and I to drive all the way across the country and you know, drive from Southern California to, to North Alabama. And then we were going to leave on Wednesday and get here on a Sunday night. And, um, and right as we were making all of our plans to drive and so on, there was a, a good friend of mine in Southern California who said, you know, I'd already finished my responsibilities at the previous church. He said, I know you're going to be around. I know you're planning to travel, but you're, will you stay? Will you preach at our church on this Sunday? Will you just stay and preach one last time before you leave? So I wrestled with this, and I said, okay, I, I, I'll do that, and I really love this man. And, and so I sent my son, my oldest son, along with all my books in our Ford across country. And he had, a, he had a girlfriend at the time who lived in Kansas, who was also a Wheaton student, so he wanted to go visit her in Kansas. And so I called him one morning, I think it was maybe it was Thursday morning, about 8 o'clock in the morning, and he's all happy, and he said, I just, just got into Kansas, and I'm making good time, making good progress, and uh, you know, on his Bluetooth we're talking and so on. And then I said, okay, be careful and obey the speed limit and so on. And then I called him about nine hours later. He said, Dad, I'm still in Kansas. He said, what a soul-sucking state. <laughs> Apologies to all Kansans. But he said, what a miserable, miserable drive. He said, I haven't seen anything for nine hours. It's all level ground. He said, I keep trying to make progress and trying to get further along, and it seems like I haven't gone anywhere. And I thought about that. I thought, this is actually the perfect word for religion, soul-sucking. It's exactly what it is. It drains a person of every ounce of life, every bit of vitality and confidence, all that striving, all those efforts to clean ourselves up before God that result in frustration, despondency, fear, and sometimes self-loathing. And that's what was happening in first century Jewish culture. A.W. Pink comments on this passage this way. He says, Judaism still existed as a religious system, but it ministered no comfort to the heart. 
It had degenerated into a cold mechanical routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. And what this passage is, what this beautiful passage of Jesus, this wine at a wedding, as I call it, the sermon of this message, what this beautiful passage is, it is a picture of God's grace. See, Jesus didn't have to do anything at the wedding. He didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to change the water into wine. He didn't have to spare the groom of the shame and ridicule of failing to provide what was required. But he did, and he didn't just change some water into wine. He created lots of it, 150 gallons or so. The picture moves from the fear of scarcity. What are we going to do? There's no wine. To what one biblical scholar calls the hilariousness of abundance. The jars aren't just filled, but filled to the brim. And not just with wine, but the best stuff imaginable. They go from having nothing to having more than they can imagine. God pours out His grace in abundance, and He does so when the situation looks most bleak. When the wine is gone and the guests are complaining, there's a lot of murmuring going on, clamoring for more. When longing reaches its high point, I love what Martin Luther says about this passage. He says, Christ waits to the very last moment when the want is felt by all present and there's no counsel or help left. This shows the way of divine grace. It is not imparted to the one who still has enough and has not yet felt his need. For grace does not feed the full and the satisfied, but the hungry. Whoever deems himself wise, strong, and pious and finds something good in himself and is not yet a poor, miserable, sick sinner, receives not his grace. But those who recognize their need, those who have come to the end of their self-salvation project, those who know how stupid it would be to go to God and say, here's what I'm bringing to you. I'm clean. I need to be forgiven. To those, for those who come to that, the end of their rope, who trust in no other righteousness but Christ alone, who know of no other help except Jesus alone, they receive grace upon grace that not only pardons and cleanses, but grace that restores, that brings celebration and joy. There's so much more to discuss as we get into the old and new, but maybe as we wrap up for the sake of this message, the takeaway is not, are you filling your lives to the brim with Jesus, right? Are you, are, you, are you doing so much that your, your works overflow, as some might be include, inclined to apply? But rather, where is it that we go through the religious motions? Where is it that we're working hard at making ourselves presentable to God rather than looking to, rather than beholding the Lamb of God? Where are we making sure to cross the T's and dot the I's in an effort to present ourselves to God as righteous rather than resting in the finished work of Jesus? In what ways are we wearing ourselves out, believing that one more event, 15 minutes more of prayer, one more ministry, one more good work, and then God will finally be pleased with me instead of Trusting in the one in whom God was well pleased because he was perfect in every way. In what ways are we trying to put on the pretense of perfection? Admitting maybe this sort of global sense that everybody's sinful, but not actually saying, yeah, I'm sinful. 
I'm broken. I'm selfish. I'm angry. I'm lazy. Whatever it is. In what ways are we trying to put this pretense of perfection rather than resting in the one who fully and perfectly satisfy God? Trying to clean ourselves up before God to gain His approval. Trying to justify ourselves before a holy God. These are exhausting and soul-sucking efforts. Resting in Jesus, though, puts a song in our heart, laughter in our bones, rest for our souls, and spurs us to worship and obedience. Let's pray.